Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Tom Baer. Tom Baer is a deputy cancer director at the Knight Cancer Institute at OHSU. Um, My old boss, Tom Baer, it's a pleasure to see you again. How are you? It's so nice to see you. How's it going? (laughs) It's going well. Um, I'm I'm here in San Francisco. The weather is um, the weather is nice. How are things there in Oregon? You know, today it's it's much nicer than it's been. Uh, so, um, you know, things are things are looking up. You know, and and since we're talking about COVID, we're fortunate to see cases coming down, um, vaccines uh, going up. Uh, so I think we're we're beginning to be cautiously and preliminarily hopeful. That's good. Um, I'm glad to hear that, and that's that's my assessment too. So I wonder if we'll jump in. Let's talk about this vaccine and and how we advise people after the vaccine. Um, you know, you're a cancer doctor. Um, I'm a cancer doctor. Uh, you know, we we sometimes are in this game. We have patients who are immunosuppressed and and they're looking for advice about what they can do, what's safe. Um, how do you think about this? How do you think about this question? Well, you know, first uh, let me just say a couple things uh, in opening. I mean, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that I'm not a virologist. I'm not a vaccinologist, and I'm, I'm not a, an expert in public health. Like you, I'm uh, I'm a physician who's trained to uh, read the literature and think critically, and so that's what I bring to the table to this discussion. But I, I would like to fully acknowledge that I'm not, you know, a, a world's expert in viruses. Um, well, Tom, that never stops anybody. That never <laughs> don't let that stop you. <laughs> and secondly, whatever you know, whatever fun comments we're going to share, I do want to start with saying that it's just remarkable uh, to see the development and deployment of these vaccines. And for all the uh, the controversies along the way and the mm-hmm. challenges and the disputes about who goes first and so forth, the fact that we're even able to have this discussion at this point in time, uh, just about a year um, after the pandemic really hit the United States in earnest, um, th- that's just incredible. And I, I think uh, the folks that that were responsible for the development of these vaccines we ought to be having ticker tape parades yeah, absolutely. Folks and, and be building monuments to them. And <laughs> they should be the superstars uh, and perhaps not um, uh, not some of the other folks that we put up on the pedestal. Uh, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you asked me last uh, March, would I predict they'd have a vaccine by December and a vaccine this good? I would have said no on both counts. So I was blown away. I'm, I'm super impressed. Hats off. Uh, amazing. Amazing achievement of science. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting time and it, it's interesting to think about the implications of the vaccine for what we can do 
Um, I haven't had a chance to read the latest CDC guidelines that just came out. I'm sure you're going to bring me up to date on those. But, <laughs> you know, the thing that I've been struck by is that um, there's been so much caution about um, the unknowns around the, the implications of the vaccine for transmission. And I think there are some things missing in that conversation. I mean, I, I've heard my friends who are not in the medical field say, well, the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. That's what they're hearing in the public health message, which is um, almost certainly completely wrong. I, mean, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, and it's hard for the general public to understand the distinction between we're not sure yet, we haven't measured that endpoint, um, and we don't know how much the vaccine reduces transmission. It almost certainly does. We just don't know maybe how much versus it doesn't reduce transmission, which is what, what I think a lot of the members of the public are hearing. And the other thing that's missing, I think, in that conversation is that, you know, we, we speak about herd immunity, which by the way, I don't really like the term herd immunity. We're, we're not really, if we were a herd, we'd all be behaving in an organized fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Humans are hardly a herd. I think hardly. maybe community immunity is a better term, but in any event, we talk about that concept at the same time as we talk about the idea that we're not sure how much the vaccine reduces transmission. And of course, those two positions are incompatible. You can't have herd immunity if the vaccine doesn't reduce transmission, right? So, so it's, it's uh, yeah. completely inconsistent with one another hypocritical. Yeah. Those two statements. Um, no, I agree with you hundred percent. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you follow along, but in January, the end of January, I wrote an op-ed basically arguing that, you know, the vaccines will and substantively reduce transmission. And we had already had the data there. We had swabs on dose two Moderna showing a 60% reduction in PCR positivity. Um, we have data from the polyclonal antibodies, um, that they reduce, um, that, that antibody titers in the blood, uh, will reduce the amount of nasal carriage of the virus. Um, yeah. And we have the experience of pretty much every other vaccine ever made, all but one, to my knowledge, that also slows transmission dramatically. And we know transmission to some degree is driven by symptomatic people, and this will lower that. So we know it's going to do it. Um, yet, you know, there was reluctance. Um, I wrote my thing saying that, you know, after vaccination, you know, you can hug your grand, hug your grandma, you know, you can have dinner parties. Um, I got some pushback, a lot of pushback. Yeah, you're familiar with this. A lot of people tweeting, tweeting uh, at the employer and said, why does this guy work there? <laughs> you, yeah. this time it doesn't go to your desk. This time it doesn't go to your desk, Tom. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, well, you and know, I, I would say that I'm not going to hold myself out as an expert on what we can and can't do. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that would be responsible of me, but, but I, but I would point out that I think some of these, I would say caution biased communications um, uh, may do a disservice uh, to the uh, acceptance of the vaccine. I mean, if you think about it, uh, what the customer wants, the customer being the American people, right, is they, they want um, to be safe themselves. They want to keep their loved ones safe. And they want this bloody thing to be over so they can travel, go out to dinner and, and get back to a normal life. So if your job is to um, convince the public that there's this great thing that's going to help uh, end the pandemic, and that's the vaccine, and you, you, you say, well, it's going to make you safer, but it's not going to make your family any safer, or at least we don't know, and the public hears the latter. Uh, and um, 
and you can't, you can't really change anything that you're doing. You still have to maintain all the restrictions. I, I mean, I think that is not a great sales pitch. For the <laughs> no, that's not great. That's terrible. And I'm not that's saying terrible. we should be selling in the, in the cheap sense of the term. I mean, we should be selling in the, the good sense of the term, which is letting folks know that this is really a compelling thing to do. And that, yes, we don't yet know how quickly and how completely it will reduce transmission. We, we haven't done the experiments on ha- hugging your, your grandparents, you know, but the data are pretty darn good. And you, you probably can, especially, obviously, if your grandparents are also vaccinated. And, and in any event, it's just such an exciting thing to, to avail ourselves to get, get, get us closer and closer to back to normal. And we're kind of missing that opportunity with the, um, with the really uh, caution-focused messaging. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should um, throw caution to the wind. And I, I completely agree that you know, we, we've, we're in this critical moment where there are concerning variants. We, we've not yet vaccinated the majority of our population. We don't want to do dumb things. Uh, so I don't disagree with that message, but but I I would couple it with with perhaps a little bit more hope for what this vaccine is going to realistically achieve for people pretty soon. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and uh, and I think that's just the realistic that's just the truth about the vaccine. Um, and today the CDC guidance reflects that. I mean, it does say that you know if you're vaccinated you can have small get togethers. It does support these things that, you know, people have been talking about for a few weeks, but I think you're putting your nail on the head, which is this, um, you know, I, the word you used was um, sort of a caution, a caution centered uh, narrative, that caution centered narrative group. Um, you know, that's a strong coalition um, that, uh, that is caution sensitive. And I think they're a little bit caution sensitive, maybe because of some of the missteps early in the pandemic, where I remember, you know, in, in January and February of last year, the media telling me over and over again, you know, you should worry about flu more than SARS-CoV-2 because flu has killed more people this season. Of course, uh, that was backwards. <laughs> I should have worried more about <laughs> SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> Um, I wonder from your point of view, you know, you're a, you're, you're a physician, you've been in science for a while. Um, we shouldn't, we shouldn't decades, but let's not say how many, let's not say how many, um, I don't know. How do you think about this, the scientific dialogue? I mean, to one degree, it's different. We, we've never, we've used to be able to meet face to face. Now we're doing it by zoom. Um, when you go and look at the landscape, when you see what people are talking about, um, how do you think, how do you think this, the scientific dialogue is going? You know, it's, it's it's hard for me to to assess all of the scientific dialogue, and, and I don't know if you're talking about the scientific dialogue on Twitter, which I'm generally not a part of. Uh-huh. Good, you're a wise man. <laughs> or, or in the or in the literature, but I do think that a lot of the dialogue, including some of the scientific dialogue, has um, has uh, become a little too. Um, too divided into camps, and and, and some of the the um, sort of oriented towards uh, identifying evidence in support of one's position, rather than an open uh, outlook on whatever whatever the wherever the data take us. And, and it's a little frustrating to see that. And I, I wouldn't want to indict certainly the entire scientific community and, and all journalists and things like that. I think there's plenty of, of really solid dialogue out there. But um, I don't know whether it's been the, the, the political uh, 
angle on this that developed uh, over the past year that's made it so so difficult uh, to have sometimes a, a conversation about the issues that departs from from kind of one channel or the other. I'm, for example, I'm I'm eternally puzzled by the fact that face masks are in the same uh, bucket as uh, business closures and school closures, in, in the sense that you know the right generally opposes them and and the left generally supports them. And in my, in my mind, you know, uh, you know, closing schools and, and closing small businesses um, has a really substantial uh, cost to it. And, and we can have a great conversation, maybe not you and I, because I'm not an expert at that, but, you know, as a society, how you balance those costs and benefits. But face masks, I mean, they are just all upside. I, I, they're a, 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 you know, a fashion expression opportunity. They, <laughs> they, they're a little inconvenient and a little uncomfortable, but I would think that anybody who wants businesses and schools open uh, would be a big fan of face masks and anything else at all that can reduce the transmission of the virus. You know, wearing face masks does not put people out of work uh, and put people in a position not to be able to pay their rent. Um, and, and why are those things lumped together? I I, I don't understand. Uh, no, it's a great, I mean, yeah. it's a great example. And to be honest, I'm uh, someday there's somebody who I'm going to bring on this podcast and I want to ask this question to, which is the question you're pointing out, which is that, um, you know, hypothetically, if you are somebody who is critical of business closures and lockdowns, and there are many such people, and they, and they have good arguments, I think, which is that there are serious downsides to this intervention, and, and who knows what the potential upside is. But if you're such a person, and, and we know they tend to fall on the political right, my question to those people has always been, why don't you embrace masks, even if you don't think they do that much? Because it will allow you to open your business, which it sounds to me like is the priority. So I've never had a good idea why, you know, you're putting your your finger on the on the on the right spot. I've never had a good idea why those two are wedded. I would think even if your heart in your heart of hearts, some of these people don't think it does that much. The mask, I would think they would support it just because it allows them to get their business open. Um, and, and, you know, we put up with all, you know, you and I know. In medicine, we jump through a lot of hoops to be able to run our clinic, um, a lot of bureaucratic hoops. We may not agree with all the hoops, but we jump through them so we can do what we think is most important, which is running our clinic. Um, and I would see it the same way. I, I never, I agree with you. I don't understand why they became wedded. Yeah, it, it's almost a, I mean, I, I don't think it's a scientific uh, yeah. uh, alliance, Cultural. but it's also, you know, if we're going to stir up controversy and, and say things. The other thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is um, what I see as a um, as a relative lack of curiosity about what we see all around us on, on behalf of the media that, that informs us. I mean, I, I just read a, a wonderful uh, piece in The New Yorker um, about uh, how um, COVID has, has affected the world very differently. I don't know if you saw that, that piece um, where, you know, surprisingly in places like India and, and Africa, um, the mortality impact just didn't happen, which is exactly the opposite of what you'd expect. Um, uh, you know, these are places where uh, folks live in multi-generational households, the crowded healthcare systems are inadequate, uh, sometimes not up to the task. Not that ours is, you know, <laughs> fantastic, but still, you know, um, 
And and yet um, the the number of deaths per population just is incomparably lower than in the Western states. And, and it can't be explained by what happened, say, in China and Korea, a very potentially a very aggressive, effective public health intervention early on when the the burden of virus was was really low. That that's not what happened in those places around the world. That's a, a fascinating story um, uh, that the media isn't really tackling very well. And I think there's a there's got to be some things to learn. You know, when I was in medical school, one of my professors was was the famous Don Coffey. You probably everybody's heard of Don yeah. Coffey, and and he. Uh, um, one of his sayings is that the essence of inquiry is to say, to, to observe what's around you and say, if this is true, what does that imply? Yeah. That's really the whole thing, you know? And we're not doing enough of that. You know, we're, I think our media is, is sort of repeating pretty straightforward messages from a couple of sides, um, do more of this, do less of that, um, don't, don't do this, do that. But, but there's not a lot of really critical look at what's going on. Why, you know, why is it that, um, you know, that the excess mortality in California and Florida are pretty similar? Uh, I'm not going to take a position on, right. I have no idea why. Right. Maybe the variants in, in California are, are more aggressive and, and despite, um, uh, you know, more aggressive government stance, they over, came that or maybe maybe the, the the folks in California didn't follow the orders as well and so on a net basis um, the, the the intensity of interventions wasn't as different as we thought but right. I don't know but th- right. that's a great story that nobody's writing right and I think I think I mean I think you're spot on and I guess I would extend it a little bit I mean the way I would put it is um, there are these differences and we and it and it is an open question. What are the factors for it? And I I, I wrote something about it. I, I had six buckets, and I don't know where how much you put in each bucket. But here are my six buckets. One is, um, are you measuring the thing the same? So we know that the definition of a case and the definition of the hospitalization, the definition of a death, maybe there's some variability place to place possible. Next thing um, is early um, pandemic events. When the entire world shut down in early March, some nations may have had more seating events than other nations. Um, and so if you start with 10 seating events versus 100,000 seating events um, versus 10,000 seating events, um, maybe there's a difference. So maybe Australia had different preconditions than the US, that moment we all shut down mid-March. Um, the third bucket I put is the bucket that everyone wants to talk about, which is the actions of human beings, our policies, our restrictions. Maybe that made the difference. The fourth bucket, I think, has to do with the differences in the built environment, our population density, our structures, um, our ability to lift up the drawbridges. Like in New Zealand, they can lift them all up really quickly. Um, uh, the, the, the fourth bucket, I think, differences in the people, the age structure of the population, such as sub-Saharan Africa, India, a lot more young people. Um, maybe that has a role. Um, and then the last bucket I always put is stoichasticity and chaos, which is, you know, there's some degree this is random and some pandemic spread will will stop on its own from a chaotic um, sort of pattern. Um, and the answer is, you know, why did Florida do this way and and, and California this way and Taiwan and Taiwan this way and Canada that way? Um, it's going to take years. And I and I do agree with you that it's so easy for everyone to succumb to a simple narrative, which is that, 
well, it's this or it's that. But the truth is, as you put it, you need to have some curiosity. And, and I don't know what the answer is. I, I bet in a few years, there'll be some really elegant research that might help us figure out what mattered and when. I mean, I think it's human nature to want to explain things and, and, and arrive at an explanation. And it's really easy to do to try to do that with the things we, we know. And, and it's, you know, so you see the outcome numbers, you know what the, the uh, local government actions might have been. You can measure some mobility metrics and things. Those are the things we know and understand. Uh, but they, you know, certainly when it comes to um, India, I, I don't think those known factors explain the whole thing. Even the age distribution doesn't appear to be uh, a full explanation, at least as uh, if you believe what was what was written in the New Yorker. Right. right. Uh, I know, uh, you know, I think um, some of the hypotheses have to do with um, potentially unrecognized pre-existing immunity due to right. exposure to some other um, related or similar viruses in the past, or, or perhaps some other unknown uh, factors, but right. the, the differences are big. These aren't yeah. subtle differences. Right. It's massive. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the issues with the reporting, I, I completely agree that those are real issues. But if you look at, for example, total mortality um, by age group or, or, or in total and look at what, what people are referring to as excess mortality, where you compare the, the deaths uh, occurring this year across your whole population or maybe across various age groups to the last five years in a row and, and sort of the expected curve. I mean, you can see that data in the New York Times every day. Um, and you and that um, uh, integrates everything. It, it integrates COVID deaths, non-COVID deaths um, that may have been decreased or increased as a result of our, you know, response to COVID. I mean, it, that, there's a complexity to that as well. I mean, I'm sure there's. I've been getting a refund on my auto insurance uh, ever since COVID started, which tells you right away that there's very likely fewer car accidents. Right. Right. I haven't been dri driving so. So there's all these secondary factors that drive into that, but ultimately excess death calculations, uh, you know, give you the full picture, and and, and it's hard to hide behind reporting biases. In, right. In the kinds no, of that's fair. Yeah. No, I I I agree with you there. Um, my question for you. Um, you know, you're somebody who you've come on this podcast before to talk about business matters. You're business savvy. Um, so as a business person, you know, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the downsides of some of these interventions um, and, 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 and whether or not you think they'll translate into uh, simply economic downside or is there a downside to health um, from prolonged closure, from, from shutdowns, things like that. Um, are, there, are there things that you think about there? Well, I think that's where you get into some topics that are very passionately <laughs> held by, by a lot of folks. And yeah. I mean, it, it goes without saying that um, any, um, any action has consequences, right? And those consequences are uh, desired and undesired. I mean, that's true of an antibiotic prescription. Uh -huh. Anything we do, right, uh, has that. So it's pretty obvious that if you, um, um, uh, you know, take actions that close businesses or close schools in particular, uh, you know, there's going to be folks out of work, folks struggling economically, uh, kids falling behind. 
And um, the, the problem though, is that most of the time when we get into these debates um, about which is worse and whatnot, um, it's really hard to measure what, what you're really after. So for example, the, the, the folks who um, wanna take a side will measure the, the current state and measure it against their perceived harm. But of course, if you if you don't, you know, if you don't take some measure, I mean, we could. I don't know how effective the measures are, but let's assume that the me measures are effective uh, at some level. If you loosen them, then you get more infections. So your comparison isn't really, you know. Yes. It's a it's a dynamic system, so it's yes. it's hard to weigh it, and I don't envy those public health officials who are trying to make those decisions. I, I'm, I'm not going to you know, get on here and, and bash anybody because they are they're really tough decisions. But there's no question that that there are significant downsides. Uh, and unfortunately, as you know, and as many have said, those downsides tend to accumulate uh, to the most vulnerable in our society. And, and that's on both sides of the ledger. You know, right. that, that's on the infection side and consequences of COVID. And that's also on the economic consequences. And it's, I think it's really amplified that. And, and we see it all around us where those of us who are able to work remotely are invested in the stock market. Um, you know, uh, I mean, have probably are no worse off, except, right. you know, maybe you haven't seen our family and friends as much and it's, right. it's been hard. Whereas the folks on the front lines, um, May have, you know, in the restaurant industry and in the travel industry, they've been really, um, uh, really injured by, by, by this crisis. And I think we have a responsibility as a society to uh, help get, get them through this. You know, so I'm glad to see that the current uh, relief bill, for example, has some help for restaurants. I mean, that's right. like, like one of the hardest hit sectors and right. they, they weren't included. Right. In the prior help, we, we, we helped the airlines, which is important. Um, but, you know, airlines are big. And if they fail, that is really visible. Restaurants are often small, but they are businesses that feed families for generations. And, yeah. and uh, I'm glad they're getting some help. Yeah, and that's well put. Um, I know you have a hard stop, so our time's almost up. But I wanted to ask you something before I got you. Uh, Olaparib prostate cancer. Uh, you've got you've got your approval. Uh, okay, here's my question for you. Um, you know, you're a prostate cancer expert. I can't let you off the hook. Um, do you give? Do you? I, I suspect you use it in the right patients. But my question is, who are those right patients for you? Um, do, do you use it uh, pre-taxane? or only post-taxane? Um, do you use it in BRCA1, BRCA2? Do you use it in ATM? Uh, which mutations uh, are the ones you consider it in? How, how, how are you using Olaparib and Rucaparib? <laughs> well, I know this is your favorite topic, and I'm sure <laughs> you, you felt vindicated by the nice decision. Uh, <laughs> I did follow. I did follow. So, um, and, you know, I think that... Um, it's a wonderful question that you ask, which patients to use it in? Because that, that I think gets a bit lost in the debate. And um, the, uh, it's pretty clear from the data so far uh, that number one, we don't know enough because uh, for many of the mutations we're talking about, there's, there's literally still just a handful of patients. Right. But number two, you know, for those mutations where you see a five, 10% response rate 
My answer to that is, you know, I could use oral cytoxin or oral etoposide, which right. is what we used for prostate cancer before we had mitoxantrone, the exciting new drug that it is. Um, and that produces a 10% response rate in unselected patients. Carboplatin alone has a 20 plus percent response rate. There are four phase two studies of single agent carboplatin in prostate cancer that nobody has read in 25 years. Uh -huh, yeah. so, so to use a targeted drug in a targeted population and get a 10% response rate, that to me is unsatisfying. Um, I think that the data for BRCA2 yeah. are really quite good. And there, you know, we can, I still think we have a lot to learn about, uh, uh, you know, biallelic loss, which, which ones are really the right ones. Um, but, uh, you know, in particular patients who are, um, who, who are carriers of, of BRCA2 mutation to begin with and very likely have a second hit, uh, you know, those folks I think are good candidates. I don't recommend it in ATM patients, despite the fact that that was included, right. the Olaparib label. I was disappointed to see that it was a lumping that was rational to begin with, but the data are the data. And I think the purist might even say that BRCA1, that there's just not that many cases and that the case is not as compelling. There may be other mutations that emerge, RAD51, PALB2, but the numbers are so small, it's hard to know. So, you know, I think there's a place for these agents, despite your views about them. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, we want to maximize the benefit um, uh, and minimize uh, the, the cost and side effects and, and, um, and whatnot. Um, so patient selection is, is key to practice with PARP inhibitors. That's that's fair. Um, so uh, I guess I, the only thing I would say is that ev ev everything you said tells me that what you're talking about is after docetaxel. I mean, you're talking about the post-taxane setting, dosi and cabazin. You know, I, I think, well, as you know, for, for your audience, rucaparib was was registered after a taxane. Olaparib was, was not, right. was not required. Yeah. I think that ends up being a very human and individual choice. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not too difficult to have a spirited debate uh, that's a lot of fun based on the data. But I do want to say it's a little different when you're dealing with an individual human being who brings values and priorities to the table and who may have strongly held preferences as to how they would like to approach the care for their, their cancer. And so I wouldn't say I'm dogmatic about it. I think most of the time it's after a taxane, but there may be an occasional circumstance where I'm particularly uh, uh, encouraged by the mutational profile. I'm convinced that there's functional loss of BRCA2. I'm dealing with a patient who is anxious about chemotherapy. Sure. I'm not going to take a, a Vinay Prasad data-driven stance and say, no way. <laughs> You know, well, uh, uh, to be I'm perfectly honest, if, if, judgment to the if I'm if I'm in that situation, you know, the reality is I, 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 I will bend my stance. But I guess my my stance has more to do with how they ought to be approving uh, than what individuals ought to do, because the truth about bedside medicine is you always end up doing, you know, what you think is right in that situation. Um, and and yeah. there's still an art to medicine. To yes, be. of course. Always, always. Um, and so even approvals that I have railed against. Uh, I, you may find, in fact, that sometimes I've prescribed the product. Um, but uh, that's the difference, I think, between where we want the sort of gatekeeping to occur. Um, so but, I yeah. Can I ask you one last question? Yes. It's your time that's about to run out, I've heard. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, tell I'll me. Two minutes late to my next meeting. Okay, so, good. Herd immunity. 
Yes. Um, so I, I was interested in seeing that, you know, the CDC estimate for how many actual COVID cases have been in the United States yes. back in September was 7.2 times the reported cases. The most recent update is 4.6. Yes. Times. If you multiply 29 million by 4.6, you get to about 130 million infections. First dose vaccines have been delivered to somewhere, I don't know, 50 to 60 million people. Yeah, it's I think 19%, 20%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what do you think? I mean, are, are you willing to make a prediction as to when when this thing is really going to start turning? <laughs> I don't think it's a black and white yeah. herd immunity at 80%. I think it's a process uh, where, you know, as more people are immune, there's going to be, uh, you know, the are not declines and the, yes. the pandemic begins to subside. So what, what do you think? Okay, I guess my two cents are, um, I, I agree with your premise. Um, herd immunity is not a fixed value. It is a moving target based on population admixture and things of that nature. So if you have a population that's uh, mixing quite freely, you get these sort of theoretical herd immunity thresholds. But if you have a population where there's some um, mixing within strata and not as much cumulative mixing, um, the threshold varies. Um, herd immunity doesn't mean there'll be no cases. Of course, there will always be breakthrough cases as that, as that equilibrium point just dips below. Um, um, uh, so I think there's a range of opinions. Um, uh, I think Marty Macri has his Wall Street Journal opinion article where he thinks we'll be there by April. Um, and he's pretty confident that the cases will get very low. Um, I think uh, John Yonides, another person I've had on this podcast, he thinks that um, we have done a poor job of ascertainment. So I think he also thinks that we're probably getting pretty close to that. And I think Gottlieb uh, has his article with Mark McClelland uh, saying something similar. Um, I guess if I had to speculate, I think by the summer, if, I, if you make me guess, and I hate to do this, but if you, I, I think by the summer we'll have very low cases. Um, I think things will, will feel as if um, uh, we, are, we are at that steady state. Um, I think in the winter of this next year and in the winter of the year after, I think we will likely have breakthrough COVID-19 cases. I don't think we're going to get to a COVID-0 situation. Um, and how we deal with that will be sort of an open question. But I, I guess I'm optimistic that, that by, by summer we'll be in a good place um, good. For, for some of the reasons that you articulate. All right. Well, maybe we'll leave, leave it there. I can't top that prediction. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, Tom. Nice to see you, Vinay. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.